You're listening to the Legendarium Blue Team. You have chosen wisely. Please go to patreon.com slash legendarium to support the show. What would your dream casting be for the new Dune? And why in the name of Shai Hulud do people hate Lynch's movie so much? <laughs> Welcome to the Legendarium. We are the Blue Team, and this is episode number 216, Dune, the second episode, which is the third part of the first first book the third book of the yeah, first book third, of the second you know somehow or other if if you haven't been reading you don't understand stop go back read the book and then come back and catch up to us we'll be we'll be waiting here for you just pause us that's how this works james herbert had some uh or frank herbert has some some you know it's not just numbering me. issues it's it's, it's everybody wants me. to see james and say james <laughs> hi everybody james's name james's name is high on our list we'll we'll get to him in just a second but it's first a good name but first she has a wit that is as sharp as a gom jabbar. She is Megan Smythe. Hi, everybody. That's all I got. And as awesome as a Kareem Abdul. Well, there you go. There you go. As a Kareem Abdul. It's been a long weekend, wow. guys. Okay. We're going <laughs> to. And he has been running around saying things like, The Spice is Life and Damn the Harkonnens. It's Ken Johnson. And also, like, you worm faced, crawling, sand brained piece of lizard turd. Now, let's I imagine be that comes up a lot in conversation. Oh, especially with my kids. I think he's been using that all weekend long. He's been in the happiest place on earth, which means there's all kinds of reasons to say those kinds of things. Oh. Uh, I adhered to my OC Bible well. And week. he is joining us like a guild navigator, uh, traveling without moving. He is James Jenkins. Welcome back, James. Thanks for having me back. Great to be here. Yeah, I, I mentioned that he is traveling without moving because currently he is joining us through a Google Hangout. So you may not be able to hear any difference on him, but we are looking at his face life-size on a television in front of us uh, and, and communicating through all of these wonderful technology pieces. I'm just, it's really cool that technology gives us so many options this way. It's Behold really the cool. 21st century, I yep. swear. I'm just now waiting for my flying car and my self-drying clothes. Um, <laughs> and my power laces. And my power laces. Um, we will, we will jump right into, uh, we'll jump right into our housekeeping, but before uh, we're going to do a housekeeping a little different this time. Uh, you know, normally if you've been with us on the podcast for any period of time, you, you know how to reach us, you know about Patreon, you know about Reddit, uh, you know how to find us on, on social media and different kinds of places. Uh, but what you don't know is that we try and pay attention to that. And sometimes we get things from you that we really want to share. And this is one of those times we, we probably can't do this every time we get an opportunity. Uh, and every time somebody has something going on, but but we wanted to to recognize this one, uh, Andrew Lobley, who has been a longtime listener with the podcast, a longtime supporter, is uh, has a fundraiser to uh, to try and fight leukemia. He's calling it the world's greatest shave, and he has a significant amount of of plumage of hair <laughs> that he is shaving off in order to raise money and show support for. Uh, for the fight against leukemia, um, I know most. Uh, I, I'm not going to speak for for all of the people here on the panel, but I will say that uh, cancer has impacted people very close to me in the past, uh, including leukemia. I have a dear friend who's uh, who's one of his children is fighting leukemia right now. Um, anything that we can do to to fight some of these kinds of things and to and to make an effort 
uh, is certainly worth the time and worth the and, and worth the money. Uh, so we'll put a link on his for his uh, fundraising for Andrew's fundraising up on our on our page, and uh, you can donate if you would like. We would I'm sure he would appreciate it. We may not be able to do that for everybody. That we, we may not be able to give you a shout out on an episode for every for every cause that comes along. And there are many 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 worthy causes that many of us are involved with. But you know what? If if it's something important to you, maybe it's going to be important to the rest of our community as well. Yeah. So don't don't hesitate to let us know, and we'll see what we can do. There In the meantime, now that we've taken care of housekeeping for this time. Now that all the sentimental crap is out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Let's, I mean, well, let's, that's, sorry, that's not what now, I meant. Now that we're done with the crying, let's get to the bloodletting, shall we? That's <laughs> um, every week when Craig's in town. Megan and Megan and, and James and I are going to jump in on this uh, as we go along. But right now, Megan and, and Ken, you've had about, what, five five days a week, better part of a week? Yeah. Yeah. Since you finished the book. About a week. I finished on Tuesday. All right. What are your thoughts? What are your initial feelings, your initial impressions? Um, For me, I felt like it ended just really quickly. It kind of ended in the middle of the story, which is a little bit what I expected it to do. I thought that it would resolve the situation on Arrakis um, and kind of set it up for the next part of the story. I don't actually know if the next novel is the next part of the story or if it's a retelling of the current story. I don't know. We'll find out. Um <laughs> But I was <laughs> over here shaking oh, with I glee. I've, I looked You're over so at James funny. and he chuckled when I'm just doing my little happy dance. This is oh. why we do radio. Yes. Um, Nobody wants to look at us. Nobody wants to see this face. Ken, what anyway. about you? I, uh, I, I found it very interesting that the third part, I'm not going to call it a book. I just, I can't. I, the third part is where... It, it deviates in terms of tone from the first two where there's all the inner monologue, inner perspective uh, type asides as we're reading. We, we get the chat, we get the paragraphs of what's happening. We get dialogue with each character. And then all of a sudden we get italicized um, asides from characters basically out of, out of nowhere um, as everybody is their own narrator which is kind of a unique way to, to uh, tell a story, actually. But then in book three, we get a lot of, okay, now here is the action. Here is the resolution. This is where stuff is happening. No more introspection. Mm-hmm. We're just boom, 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 and uh, and we're, we're getting right to it. And, and it, I think it resolves, but clearly there is still a long way to go. And I think that Frank Herbert set that up to be like that. Yeah. I, I will say it it irritated me just a little bit that they shifted forward in time and didn't really, they kind of, they didn't say, oh, hey, we moved forward three years. They just kind of intimated, oh, this party that we had two years ago. And I'm like, wait, I just read that. That was, I'm confused. Is this a different party? And it, yeah. it just kept referring to things like that. And then it finally says that Aaliyah is like two and a half. Okay. So it's been about three years. Hey, yeah. Uh, All right. Would you like a recap? Oh, sure. <laughs> as soon as we give I'm James sorry. an opportunity, okay. then we'll give you All right. James and I haven't had our chance to talk I'm, about I'm, this. I'm excited. Initial there are four impressions. Of us here then, excited. I'm just then excited. we'll let you do your your recap, right. James. Uh, what was you, having having read this? This is your second or third time going through this. Uh, second, but it's been you know, probably more than a decade since I've read it. Okay, so so almost like the first time again. Yeah. What were your impressions as we as we your initial impressions? We'll go more in depth, but what were your more initial yeah. impressions? So kind of the same as uh, Megan and Ken's. Uh, this is the part where it kind of picks things up it gets a little more action oriented it's probably for some readers the more exciting part you know it's when there's you know the fremen are fighting more we get to finally see stuff with the sandworms 
So it's, uh, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but it's kind of the, the popcorn part of the book, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, and for me, um, well, you know what, we'll get to my impressions a little bit later. So uh, let's, oh, I, I, I will just say I had no, fun. I'm sorry, I, I made a face. because She did. Megan made a face at me. It's <laughs> well, like, Todd oh. just made this big deal about how James and he hadn't had a chance to say their piece. And then he was like, oh, just kidding. I'm not going to say my right? piece. <laughs> what a okay, keep Fine. us in suspense. I'll say my piece. I loved it. Um, <laughs> I, there is a, there is. Shocked. There are, t- there are, there are, t- this, this entire section feels again like it is really um two for me at least it feels like it's two very distinct sections mm-hmm. um and and i both really like that i like the way that it was that it was handled i like the way that frank herbert handles this um but i also have i i come to it from a different perspective than i did when i first read it through so I, I want to explore some of the things that I that uh, as we as we go into this, as we dig into this, we'll probably talk a little bit about how those shifts feel. Um, all of us have talked a little bit about how it, how there feels like it's a real uh, a, a little bit of a of a forced change in gear. Mm-hmm. Um, the change of perspective was a little bit jarring. So maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit. But I but I will say this um, for your guys, your initial your initial perspectives that you enjoyed it, you liked it. James and I coming at it from a second read. Um, again, I, I feel very much like uh, it was a it, it was handled in such a way that it was a nice conclusion, but built in such a way that it is very easily connected to the continuation of the story. Yeah. So, yes. if somebody wants to walk away from Dune at the end of reading it, they certainly could, yeah. uh, and and they could say, "Oh, good mo- good book, good book, good movie, whatever." Um, but it it it's, it doesn't leave you feeling like it's an uncompleted story. Um, but clearly there is a lot more to be discussed, a lot more to, to be covered in Frank Herbert's Definitely. Work. Yeah. So yeah, there are a lot of questions to be answered. Yeah. And we're going to answer a lot of those. We're, we're going to try and answer some of those questions as we move through today. Uh, and then we'll talk about some of the questions that are coming up. But first, Ken is about going to pee himself if we don't let him do his <laughs> recap. So Spoiler it's, alert. It's the whole, it's, it's the reason I live. It's the reason for my existence. Wow. Like, if that's the reason for your existence. Everybody we, needs something. We just, really need to talk. I just hope I read it better than I read the last one. That was hot garbage. <laughs> All right. So in honor of the 31st, uh, the 35th anniversary of that epic 80s movie, you know, the epic David, David Lynch movie, which, <laughs> which, by the way, I finally saw, and as well as the upcoming Dune series, this recap will be dedicated to Sting. Yes, it will. Two years have passed since Paul named himself Muad'Dib, prophet of the Fremen, and Jessica became the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother. An unhealthy dose of spice has left Paul with the world turning circles round his brain, running round his brain, and left Jessica's newborn daughter with the unfortunate side effect of being born knowing everything. Like, every breath you take, every move you make, I'll be watching you everything. Okay. Roxanne! Oh, man. I didn't get a Roxanne quote. Or a That's okay. There. I Too got bad. it. Which I could have because, you know, they're concubines. Anyway. <laughs> Harkonnens have reclaimed the planet and constantly hound the Fremen, leading Paul to undergo the same worm gut spice process that the Reverend Mother said all the way back on page nine will totally kill him dead. But he's only coming here seeking knowledge, you know, things they would not teach him in college. So. Oh, man. Yeah. Fortunately, the process doesn't kill him because that would have ended this series real quick. After weeks of laying around just him and the voices inside his head, Paul emerges a beautiful butterfly, also known as the Kwisatz Haderach, or 
Quicksack Hatterach. You, you, you did fine. Quicksack Hatterach. Give a dog a bone. Quicksand Haberdasher. I don't know. The power of the complete unrelatability allows him to see all the eventualities in pure synchronicity, a sleep trance, a dream <laughs> dance, a shared romance. <laughs> Then everything really escalates. Sardaukar kidnaps Super Sister, but also kill Paul Jr. in the process and encourages Paul to nuke the shield and Fremen overrun the combined might of the Sardaukar and the Harkonnen, forcing the Emperor to send an SOS to the world. Is that every little thing he does is magic? Everything. Every little thing he does is magic. Good job. So he kills Sting, takes control of all the spice, and takes the Emperor's daughter as his queen, but tells her, don't stand too close to me. <laughs> Because he's going to talk Chani into being his harlot because every little thing she does is magic. Uh, there we go. There we go. Yeah. All right. So in the end, he's got himself a concubine. He's got himself a wife. He's got all the control of the spice. And he is still supposed to make the world a better place by making it rain or something. So, all right. That's enough of all of that. And if you don't like what I just did, then da 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 is all I want to say to you. So Okay. So all, all I'm <laughs> going to say is... That was something. I hope things lawyers don't call us and ask us to cease and desist. If we get a see, of course, actually, I got to tell you, if we get a cease and desist order because Sting's been listening to our stuff when he was mad that we yeah, didn't we're ask doing for all right. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. All right, nicely done, Ken. Thank nicely done. Mean. All right, let's let's go back to our let's let's go back two weeks to our predictions. Um, we had some predictions. There was a predicted fight between Paul and Fade. Yes. Ken, how did you feel about that predicted fight when it arrived? It, it, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of how to to say. I mean, because it it was obviously it was it was it had to happen, and clearly there was going to be some deception. But it felt, and I don't know if this is is um, Frank Herbert's writing style in this book, or if um, if I've just read too much fighting these days or something, but it all felt very underwhelming. Okay. So I, it, yeah. it, it kind of, it, it, it kind of, uh, you, you expected duplicity. You expected there to be something poison and, and he was talking. I loved all of the, uh, I loved the talking, the, the trying to, uh, the overconfidence of Fade Rotha and uh, Paul quietly sitting back going, okay, I know what's happening. I, I see what he's being quiet and stoic and just figuring things out letting Fade Roth become overconfident and then he just exerts he exerts control. I liked that, but I still I don't know, I just felt a little underwhelmed. James, you write action. Is Yeah, I, it, I actually agree with you on always... that. I, I think this is one set part of the book that probably hasn't aged as well as the rest of it. The fight scenes don't feel as uh dramatic as they could. Not as uh, hectic or exciting as they could be. And maybe as they used to, um, I remember when I was, when I w read the book the first time, mm -hmm. um, that was one of the, this, the, the, the big climactic fight between Fade and Paul was one of the pieces that, that really held my attention. It captured me. And as I read, I, I think that the difference is that when I read it 30, um, <laughs> or more years ago. Um, yes, about the time that Frank Herbert himself was writing it. Go ahead, sit, make, make whatever jokes you want. Um, but when I, when I read it, it, it felt like, and, and it, I guess it played out in my mind, uh, much more kinesthetically. It, it, it was, it was much more, um, grabbing. Uh, yeah, I mean, as it's far a well it choreographed fights. I think it's just not blocked out 
properly, if that makes sense. Like, well, and there's it's, techniques it's have been developed in the recent decades, you know, that fight scenes have, they're easier to write now, I guess, if that yes. makes sense. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is I, I think a lot of writers nowadays tend to write fight scenes imagining that it's going to be like, if it were made into a movie, this is what it would look like. And that's yeah. not necessarily what Frank Herbert was doing, yeah. but it's it's hard for somebody like me who was used to that sort of sort of storytelling to read something that's mostly internal. It just felt very yeah. underwhelming. Do you think then that that's one of the things that um, that we have been spoiled with over the last five, six, maybe 10, 12 years in the way that the writing has, the writing of those kinds of scenes have changed? I think it, it could be perceived as that. I don't want to sound smarter than, than this point actually is, but it, it can be perceived like that um, only in the sense that we, I, I agree with Megan, we've all been conditioned to see things as moving pictures in our brains as we're reading. And so when we have to think about the concept that we're reading and, and kind of put it together, it, it leaves us going, I don't, I don't want to do the work basically. And, and, and or so, I don't yeah, know maybe. how to do that. Or, kind or of maybe work. I don't know how to do the work. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, and it could be just a, a relic of a bygone era that this is the way it used to be done. And now people are not conditioned to read that way. I I don't know. We've Have, had our imaginations bred out of us. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid that I bring up Brandon Sanderson on any of our podcasts. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, how dare you? But, Wait, are you going to spoil anything? No, okay. no spoilers, no spoilers. Um, but, but I think Brandon, uh, has elevated the, the writing of the fight scene. Oh yeah. Uh, to a level of artistry that Frank Herbert probably never thought about doing. And, and I will say in defense, I don't think it's a bad thing. No. I mean, it, it's not, it is, it's certainly elevated, not just Brandon Sanderson, but many of the authors these days write a much more vivid fight scene than somebody like Frank Herbert. And that's fine. I mean, Frank Herbert is the, one of the forerunners of science fiction. He's, he's the guy that basically modern science fiction. Yeah. Modern science fiction. I mean, we could go back to HG Wells and say, that's, that's the the father, you know, but, but the, the point being that it starts somewhere. And if he's the building block that leads to what we have today, then that's, that shouldn't be yeah. looked down on. That should be something that is appreciated and, and said, this is where it came from. We should honor that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, every I mean, step in the process is important, so we have to recognize it. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. If it had not been for Frank Herbert writing his writing the knife fighting that was going on in this book, and, and this, this is true not just of this fight between Paul and Fade, but between um, Paul and Jameis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true with the, with the Citadel fight or the, the Coliseum fight between, between Fade and the slave. Yeah. Um, there are multiple places where, where we have Frank Herbert giving us a, uh, giving us the, the skeleton of a fight that we flesh out in our imaginations. And, and that was the beginning place that I think launches writers like Brandon Sanderson, maybe not Brandon directly, uh, maybe this wasn't where Brandon pulls his his inspiration from, but I think that that's the beginning point. That's the springboard Actually, where some of that I, stuff starts to take off. I have to say, uh, I know Ken's reading my book right now, Fixer. Yeah. The fight scenes in that, like uh, Arthur, his shields, I stole that from Herbert. 
Like I, oh, his yeah. fighting style is based on the Shield fighting style in Dune. I was, in fact, yeah. I was going to ask you that. There was a, there's a very clear um, example of it at the very beginning of the book when, when Paul and Gurney Halleck have mm-hmm. their little duel. You know, yep. their Shield duel and. And yeah, I mean Arthur. <laughs> Arthur's a cool. I know he's supposed to be the bad guy, but he's a cool character. He becomes <laughs> I, a good guy later, don't worry. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that yeah. another time. But I, I really want to have James back on to talk about his book. <laughs> anyway, no, 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 don't have him on to talk about well, it. No, we can I, talk about it without him. I want him. James to we'll, listen to us talk about it, so I can right. so we'll, I can we'll, gush about it. We'll but see anyway. what happens later. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some of the other predictions. Um, we said that there was something interesting that we were going to find out about the little sister. Ken, you alluded to that. Um, yes. That little sister is born uh, with the knowledge of all of the reverend mothers before her at birth. So, yeah. When, in the womb. In the womb. When she the, becomes conscious. When the, the Bene Gesserit uh, sisters take the waters of life, which is the... That worm sludge, worm bile. Yeah, that worm bile to uh, to become the reverend, a, a reverend mother. There are many reverend mothers, but to become a reverend mother, they take this worm bile, which opens, uh, expands their consciousness, so they have all of the knowledge of reverend's mother before them, and yep. and all of their experiences. But it, it's not something that is done with a baby on board. <laughs> and I don't know, or if, to young people, and most, yeah. a lot of adult women don't survive it, right? And I don't know, I can't remember if this was mentioned in the book that they specifically don't do it because this is going to happen or if this is revolutionary to the Bene Gesserit, but, uh, but Ilea is born with all of the experiences of her mother and mother's past because, because she, was, she was in utero at the time yeah. that, that her mother and goes through And she becomes this. this creepy child who becomes understands this creepy child things who she knows, shouldn't. Yeah, things that she is yeah, way too young to know. But. Yeah. So what do we do with that? She becomes this. She becomes this creepy child. But did you notice that there are some interesting? I maybe you you probably did. Maybe they didn't hit you the way that they hit me this time around. Um, but I found uh, the one note, the one moment where they said, and uh, and Aaliyah is running around, uh, behaving oddly. And Paul says, no, she's behaving like any good Fremen child, killing the survivors. Right. Um, now to start with. The fact that that's what they say that the Fremen children would do anyway. But now that we have this two-year-old, three-year-old, yeah, who is, uh, who is, who is running around basically committing murder. Um, <laughs> does that? Is there anybody else in this room that feels like there's just something a little creepy about that? Little... Even more creepy than being born. Fully understanding it at, at an adult level of everything going on around you. Everything, James, what did you think? Everything about that character is creepy. And honestly, I think that's why I love her so much. I love her as a <laughs> <Yeah>. character. <laughs> well, I'm, but it's nice to know that she, we, we get a moment where we get to see um, her surrounded by all these other women and she has a conversation with Jessica and the other lady whose name I can't think of that I want to say Jamis, is Hannah, but I Jamis's know. wife, right? Yes. Yeah, I forget yeah. her name as well. I love that scene too. It's um, a great but scene. she talks about how she loves this little girl and will help um, the others to understand her and to kind of appreciate her as she is. And you realize that Aaliyah may be an oddball, and it a lot of this, a lot of um, the 
culture she's growing up in seems to be just really harsh and really severe, but it isn't. These people love their children and they want to take care of each other and they really want to understand each other. And um, so I, I mean, yes, Aaliyah is super creepy and that's horrifying that she is murdering her, uh, the villains, her enemies, but she like, hopefully, I mean, they're doing everything that they can to raise her right and to help her to be a good person and to, I don't know, use her powers for good. Um, so I'm I'm curious to see where that goes. Ken, how about you? It, it's just weird to have, uh, to see a two-year-old that has a um, a moral compass <laughs> okay. already and, and has... And thinks of other people. And has abstract per- perspective and, you know, yeah, it's it, it's creepy in that sense. Although I I'm, yeah. I love the way that the Baron gets his... We're going to come you to know. that in just a second. Yeah, I, I know we will, but one of the things that's one of the things that I found um, very interesting about the character, uh, and and it goes back to that scene where uh, she's she's talking between uh, between her mother and Paul's uh, servant, uh, anybody, Hera. Hera. There Hera. we go. Oh, yeah. There we go. Um, and it's when when we get a glimpse into her, and it's not really. Uh, Ken, you alluded to this earlier. Frank Herbert switches his writing style um, prior to in, in books one and two, lots of introspection, lots of things that are going on on the inside. Book three, part three, he really shifts to more of an observational style. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot less of what's going on inside, except when it comes to Paul. We get some pieces mm-hmm. with Paul. We'll deal with that in a second, maybe. Um, but we we get a chance where uh, we get a moment in this in this interplay where Aaliyah says, but this wasn't my choice. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that too. I I want to be, I, I just want to be a person and not a thing. And I and and she she communicates and I'm I'm badly paraphrasing this. I'm actually I'm paraphrasing pages of dialogue into a couple of sentences. Um but she has this moment where she exp- where she is expressing to all of the rest of the people around her, I I don't want to be seen as a thing. I want to be seen as a person. What does it take for you to see me as a person and allow me to interact with all the rest of you? Did anybody else feel that? Recognize that? Was that off-putting or was that something that that kind of that I picked up maybe because I was looking for it this time around? No, I one of the passages that I highlighted cuz you said you were paraphrasing a bunch of things, but it um, Jessica says it was a cruel thing. No being should wake into consciousness thus. The wonder of it is you could accept all that has happened to you. I couldn't do anything else, Aaliyah said. I didn't know how to reject or hide my consciousness or shut it off. Everything just happened. We didn't know, Hera murmured. When we gave your mother the water to change, we didn't know you existed within her. Don't be sad about it, Hera, Aaliyah said. I shouldn't feel sorry for myself. After all, there's cause for happiness here. Um, and it, it made me think... I mean, anytime somebody feels other, it's a little bit isolating. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes about like conversations I'll have with my uh, married girlfriends because I'm single and I have these um, these girlfriends who they have children and they're, you know, and they'll look at me and they're like, oh, Megan, your life didn't turn out the way that you thought it would or that you wanted it to. But you just go on and you do all these things and you're so happy and it's just so amazing. And I'm like, well, what was my choice? Like, it's not 1832. I don't have to. <laughs> stay at home and knit like i i (laughs) what else am i gonna do and do you knit no i'm just checking i knitted one sweater once you could have been an antioch gunfighter oh that would have been amazing um (laughs) there's still time 
But I, I understand that on the one hand, they're trying to like understand my point of view and build me up and kind of make me, you know, into this hero. It's like, you know, you don't get to be a mom. You don't have, get to have kids. But look at all these other things you get to do. And it's like, that's awesome. And Aaliyah's kind of, they're kind of doing the same thing where they're like, oh, I just can't, I can't, like, that's just so horrible that this happened to you. And I just can't imagine that. And she's like, well, it's my reality, but there are good things. And I, I love that she she also has that little moment of realization. That's not exactly answering your question, Todd. No, but I love it. I, I appreciate the perspective. That, yeah. that makes a big difference. And it's okay to call yourself a hero. I am a hero. <laughs> I'm, I'm the only hero in my own life. Well, you know, we are all the hero in our own books. We should um, be. James, how about you? As you're, as you're reading through Aaliyah, did you respond to her differently the second time around than you did the first? Yeah, I, I definitely think I did. I appreciated her more as a character. Like I said, I think when I first read it, I was 15. So, like, it didn't really stand out. I couldn't really comprehend the fact that this two-year-old has all the knowledge of, you know, however many adult women before her. Uh, but this time around, I was able... not. I, you can't really relate to that, but I could appreciate a little more that, yeah, she has that other aspect to her. And that made me just really... Like I said, I just, I really like her character and I feel like I liked her a lot more this read through. Yeah. I, I think that there's, um, we, we get it, we get a glimpse. Um, and, and I think, I think this is true of most, uh, of most series that you go through that you read them the first time and then you come back and you go back through and reread. And if they've really been artfully done, you find things, you find hints, you mm -hmm. find clues the second time through that lead you to understand things a little bit differently that show that the author was, the author was leaving those kinds of breadcrumbs for those who would, who would be willing to find them. Um, and I think there are some really nice ones that he leaves. Um, I'm going to leave those alone for right now because we'll talk more about them when we get into Dune Messiah. Obviously, um, these characters are not done. Um, and so I think we're going to find, uh, we're going to find that there are some really interesting hints uh, that are being made here that are coming back later on uh, in some other places. So uh, hopefully that's not too much of a too much of a spoiler. Hopefully that's more of an enticement uh, to stay with us as we go into Dune Messiah because we're going to have a lot more fun with that too. Fine, I'll keep reading. Yeah, that's Just how it goes. Just kidding, I love it. Um, I, I want to see if we have any uh, Reddit questions that we want to ask before we continue on with some of our prediction we, questions. We have many. In fact, I I, I wanted to get to, to Abe Lincoln Froman. Still love that name. He he asked. Uh, I'm, I assume he because why not? Because it's Abe. Because it's Abe. Um, asked this during Dune uh, parts one and two, but I wanted to hold it over until part three. Uh, he's got five questions. They're, they're oh brief, wow! They're they're brief questions. They're kind of like rapid fire questions, but I, I liked them all, and I wanted to I wanted to uh, ask him here. Okay. Uh, so and the first one is for you. In fact, the first couple are for you and James specifically. Cool. Megan and I can, well, Megan can chime in. I, I got nothing, but uh, number one, what other works of speculative fiction do you think we owe most to Dune? Ooh. This, I know you're big on the spec fiction and James, I would imagine you are as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know where the, the biggest inspiration, I know there are some inspirations out there. Uh, Star Wars in particular was hugely influenced by Dune. Um, <laughs> Joff Wu, our old friend Joff Wu, uh, mentioned several similarities between Dune and the Wheel of Time. Yes. And yeah. uh, I, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I can talk to that one. But that, that's fantasy. I mean, that's fantasy. And the one is space opera is basically op is, is fantasy in space. 
but those aren't spec fictions. The, so I, I'm just, I'm not sure because there's a lot of opportunity for spec fiction in Dune with all of the, uh, uh you know, uh, space full technology and, and the, the, um, still suits and the, the breeding programs also. I mean, there, yeah. there are a lot of advanced science. There's a lot of advanced science in Dune, even though one of the things that I think is very interesting and, and now I'm going on to one of our, our trademark tangents that one of the things that's most interesting about Dune is the fact that they eliminate deliberately eliminate some technology in this book. So we, I want to talk about that later, but right now about speculative fiction, I think I've given you enough time to think. James, I just to, rambled. do you want to, yeah. do you want to start? Man, I'm having a hard time thinking of specific titles. I feel like it's influence is probably wider than we could probably recognize. Like I'm sure yeah. even in fantasy, like you mentioned wheel of time, I'm sure there's countless titles that have, in one way or another, been influenced by Dune. Yeah, yeah, I would. You know, I the 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 tough part is that if speculative fiction is done, if if the if the writer has done his work well, um, we may not necessarily be able to trace those those connections unless the writer tells us. Um, yeah. If that makes sense. Um, although, having said that, I think that, um, and I may be I may be completely wrong. But I and and I think partly because uh, Frank Herbert would have been a um, a contemporary of Jerry Pornell, but I think Jerry Pornell's books, um, uh, James, I don't know if you've had a chance to read those. Um, uh, uh, Go tell the Spartans. Um, it happened on Sparta. Um, oh, I have not. There's a. It's a. It's a really interesting uh it's uh falkenberg's legion falkenberg james falkenberg or christian falkenberg christian falkenberg um talking about a <laughs> eugenics problem on earth uh about what happens when they try to terraform about the the development of the alderson drive okay. um some different pieces that are that are part and parcel or, or that feel part and parcel about uh what happens when you have warfare in space what happens when you have mercenaries in space uh, what happens when you try to, to colonize planets and when you cut planets off from communication? Um, there's some really interesting things. It was also uh, very heavily influenced, I think, by some work that was going on with Robert Heinlein, uh, who we've who we've talked about here on this podcast before, and also by what was going on during that period of time, 1960s, the Cold War, uh, everything that's going on, uh, everything that was going on during that period of time that was that was so much a question of will the world even survive to the year 2000? Um, I think those might be, might be, again, I don't know if Jerry Pornell was directly influenced, but certainly coming out of the same time period and lots of, lots of similar questions answered slightly differently, but with a little bit of a bend. So maybe there, maybe some of that. I like that. He has, Abe has some questions, uh, some other questions, but I want to save them till later when we, get past some of the, the heavier stuff when we start talking about the uh, the movies and okay. the, the upcoming okay. casting and stuff I want to talk. So I want, I want to save those. But uh, Hearn Fan asks, do you feel as if the tension is ever a problem because of the prescience and the princess's writings? We already know a lot about what is happening or not happening. Does that bother you? And why or why not? And do you feel like Paul is just too good at everything? And Megan, will you start yeah. on that one? Uh, what, what which do you part think? of it? Um, is there, I, is there tension or is there a lack of tension because we, we know what's going on and because for of me, the it creates a lot more tension, kind of getting an idea of what's, of what's going to happen. I know I'm really loud today. 
Um, I, maybe I just have a personality where I'm stressed out all the time. <laughs> but I, it was one of those things I, I may have mentioned in the previous podcast where knowing from the beginning that Dr. Yua was going to um, yeah. betray everybody. Like then I was just like, because like, it didn't happen for 500 pages and yeah. the, I just, every minute, every time somebody would mention his name, be like, what if he's the bad guy? No. And then I just want to throw the book at the wall. No, I didn't do that ever. <laughs> so James, how about you? Did that, did, did having the prescience and the, and the Empress Irulan and all of those kinds of things, did that, did that build it? Did that remove it? Did that change your perspective? You having read it once before you see things differently. What do you think? Yeah. So, uh, kind of in the same way as Megan, I think for some of the characters, builds that tension it's kind of like when you're watching a horror movie right you know mm -hmm. if they go in that house they're gonna die and you're yelling at them to not do it but they still do it so it's a different kind of tension it's not the like oh man what's gonna happen next it's the when is it gonna happen right yeah. how is it right. going to happen yeah, yeah. which okay. is just kind of fun which is an interesting way yeah to to prevent the lack of tension in a, in a story like that where we're gonna tell you what's gonna happen and now Sometimes seeing how things happen is, is just as fun as being surprised by something happening, I guess. So um, to the same point of prescience, uh, Bilbo Swaggins too. Reddit, Reddit <laughs> names are great. Says, I forget if prescience was discussed in detail, but I think a discussion is warranted due to what's important in this book, especially in the rest of the books of the series. So we haven't gotten there yet, but uh, prescience, this is the point that, that he made that I wanted to bring up is it's not limited. Prescience is not limited to seeing the future, but seeing every possible future. And once the path is chosen, Paul, in this case, must stick to the path, despite the personal tragedies that may occur to ensure that the future happens. It can also potentially be seen as a trap that if in that, if Paul, did not have the ability to choose a path to the future and make the decisions to ensure it happens with that future if eventually occurred anyway. Thank you, Dr. Strange. Right. So it's, that's what I thought too. I mean, not that I'm thinking about that as I'm drinking out of the infinity mug. Um, <laughs> that's just because you, uh, secretly relate with Thanos. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> and it never works the way I want it to. Um, <laughs> Craig's still here. Yeah. So the, <laughs> so the, the idea of fresh, the idea of prescience. Um, the one of the things that I love, and I I found it more impactful this time through than I did the first time through reading the book, was that the Paul's prescience is limited. All of the characters mm -hmm. that have that that imbibe incredible amounts of spice um, have this um, sight beyond seeing. They have this this ability to see into the future in certain areas. The Bene Gesserit have it in the area of eugenics and in what happens inside the body. The Space Guild has it in what happens in space and time as it exists right now. Paul has it everywhere, but where the others have it in limited, in limited scope for limited reasons, Paul has it everywhere, but he has it only when he is on top of the troughs. Remember, he talks about time as being... Uh, as being waves. And sometimes he's at the top of a trough where mm -hmm. he can see everything laid out before him and how to make all of those things happen. And sometimes he's down in the troughs where he doesn't know what the right move is in this moment in time in order to make sure that he goes in the correct direction. And so that's one of the things that I think that there's, there's, there's always the, well, in, in, in some circles there, there are oftentimes questions 
uh, for for individuals who are of a religious persuasion, uh, the idea of the omniscience of God, does mm. that negate then our uh, our individual agency, our individual ability to make choices? Because if God already knows it's going to happen, then is our, really our choice to make things happen. Um, Paul finds himself in this quandary all the time, not so much that he is God, but that he has that type of of ability to see in advance. So is he trapped by that? Is he not? His, and it's the moment when, and, and the, the piece of this that brought that into real clarity for me was the battle, the fight with Fade Rautha. Mm-hmm. Because he says, he's, as, he dips, as he dips down in the trough, he says that he can't see out of this one. He doesn't know if this is where he dies. He's seen his body and he's seen his body in several different situations, but he's never seen who does it to him. He's never seen who, who yeah. is responsible for his death. Okay. Is this the time? And um, it's it's quite fascinating um, to to get that perspective on the idea of of prescience of seeing the future. You can see the future, but you only it's it's like the Heisenberg principle. You can if you're looking at electrons, you can identify direction and speed, but you can't identify and direction and speed and location, but you can't identify all three at once. Uh, and impressions, he seems to have the same kind of opportunity. He can identify certain aspects in, in that deal, but he can't identify them all at once. And he can't always make the right choice. He still has to take risks. And I'd like the way that Herbert has set that up because otherwise there's no fun. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I, um, going back to Abe, Abe Froman's, Abe Lincoln Froman's question about, does it bug me that Paul is good at everything? Um, I, I, it's interesting to see how Paul grows and like knowing that he is human. Like everybody keeps saying, oh, you're a prophet. You're this amazing person. But he has been, Jessica has been training him since birth. All of how it, how like everybody has been training him since birth to become who he is. And, you know, Jessica was hoping that he'd be the Kwisatz Haderach, um, but not really knowing. And so he has been training for his whole life and it happens to all just combine in a very perfect way to this role that he has been put into um so i could see how that would bug people be like oh well you just happen to be really good at everything well it's like if if i didn't try to walk until i was 19 i would look at everybody else who's been walking their entire lives and be really annoyed i'm like oh yeah you just make it look so easy walking on your two legs but you know, Paul has been like, he's been training. He's been working on. He's been trained, but he's also been bred. Yeah. And when you, when you put those two things together, it'd be like, it'd be like fighting. It'd be like looking at someone who has all of the, all of the giftedness of a uh, PhD level mathematician combined with an Olympic level athlete who just happens to be the best athlete that the world has ever seen. Right. Since before and after Bruce Jenner. Um, is it okay to say Bruce Jenner? Anyway, um, he, he was, he Bruce was a, Jenner a when person he was back in the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, uh, I, I, I personally say Jim Thorpe. But. I think that, okay, we'll go with Jim Thorpe. Um, any other questions before we move on? We've got a couple more, we've, we've got a couple of other things that we need to talk about and we're, we're kind of running out of time. I, I got, I got one that I wanted to talk about anyway, but low significance. He's, his question is, or her question is high significance to me. Um, in our world of rapidly more ingenious scientific inventions, do you think Dune is so well received 50, 60 years 
on from its publication because it doesn't suffer from any of the outdated feeling science fiction technology, the kind of thing that we might feel if we watch Back to the Future. And the reason he asked that is he points to a New Yorker article that um, says that Frank Herbert makes a good decision by excluding computers and robots from Dune because these two things are the present or relied upon uh, trope in, in science fiction novels. So their absence does does it make it feel less dated, I guess, or does it make it feel more relatable um, to de- to today? Or does it does it keep it from being dated that we're not using computer language and all of that? And I, I think partially it does. I think it, I think it also speaks to um, where Frank Herbert was writing from because he's he's writing these books in the sixties and um it, artificial intelligence takeover for whatever reason or, or the, the rise of the machines and all of that was a real scary proposition or a prospect for people in the 60s for, for whatever reason with, with uh, you know, automation and, 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 and stuff, uh, technology advancing rapidly. Everybody I mean, from when I was a kid and, and beyond was always like, oh, computers are going to take our jobs and everybody's going to have a robot to do all their work for them and all that. And it was a thing that people were really worried about. And I think that part of that's part of a thing that comes through in his writing is that we got rid of all the computers that could think like people. So we had to create people who can think like computers. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. But we don't know why. And, and that was Are one of the find things out why? that was one of the things about uh, Dune that was kind of interesting is that it was hinted. Uh, there's a, there's a piece in Dune that had hints to the Butlerian Jihad. Hmm. Um, and James, you probably, James, have you read any of the, any of the prequel pieces that I'm Brian Herbert put together? Sort of familiar with them, but I haven't like actively read any of them. So we won't, we won't talk about it on this, on this particular podcast, but I will, I I will say this, um, there is much in the universe of Dune that is available to be discovered after we finish these first four books in the series. Um, and, and there are a lot of pieces of that, that, that are, that inform, uh, and, and that, uh, illustrate why he makes some of the choices that he makes. Um, but I, I, I don't know if it's the reason that it is still relatable today. I think there are others. Um, but you're saying wait until book three or four. I'm saying wait until book 16. Mm. Um, I will say it's nice that he doesn't include aliens. It's, it's nice to have a space story. That's just about humans. Yes. Well, that's because you've never seen a guild, a third stage guild navigator yet. Um, Firefly. So it's it's like Firefly. So let's go back really quickly. Why do you quickly, like this, Todd? Because I just am. That's how I. <laughs> that's how I live. Um, let me ask a couple of really quick yes no questions. Uh, writing the worms. Were you happy with that? No. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Megan was. Ken wasn't. Ken, why not? I I think it goes back to our discussion earlier about um, having an image in your mind or yeah. about pictures painting in your mind, and it just it it left me un- underwhelmed. Okay. I mean, it, it worked out fine, you know, uh, mechanically, uh, it worked out fine or, or structurally it worked out fine, but I just, I, I expected whooping and hollering, I guess, you know, kind of like, yeehaw, I'm riding a worm, you know, or something. You were expecting an a second ride right. and instead what you got was a 23 minute journey across the desert based yeah. on irritation of sand. It's like, cool. Yeah. You and Anakin Skywalker, you hate sand. Okay. Gurney Halleck and Paul's reunion. Did you love it or did you hate it? That I liked. Me too. 
Yeah. James? I always love that scene. I love Gurney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gurney's fantastic. Um, I just, I love that he was played by Patrick Stewart in that 80s movie. So I just think of him, I'm like, oh, you young pup. Continue. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the idea of the Princess Irulan becoming his royal consort, love it or hate it? Understand it is, I, I didn't love it nor hate it. Um, and I guess it didn't surprise me either because there was no way he was going to give up uh, the woman he actually loves. And it, it was an interesting uh, symmetry that he takes a consort or a concubine or I called her a harlot, but you know, similar to his mom. And then she gets that, that gushy last sentence in there yeah. about, you know, they'll call the concubines wives. We, or we are the ones they will call wives. Yeah. It's like, Oh, whatever. But, Hate it. Yeah. <laughs> really? Hate it so much. Okay. He's like, yeah, I'm never going to touch her. You're never going to have anything. You're just going to be my wife. And it's like that. She is a person. What? Uh, I understand that she is a political pawn and she's been raised as a Bene Gesserit, And so she's, you know, familiar with this. But that is cold. Get to know the woman. And and by the way, I mean, I know we're not into predictions yet, but no good will come of that. So not that. Well, we know she becomes a historian, but it's like, yeah, uh, I mean, she what writes, else does she have to do? Jerk. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just I'm I don't know what is going to happen, but no good will come of that. <laughs> so oh, wait until book two. Um. <laughs> So, so the last, the last question that I have, um, the schizophrenia of Paul, you like it or you hate it? Or do you know what I'm talking about? I thought it was kind of boring. Ken's Am giving I, me a weird look. James, I, I'm do you not know where sure. I'm going with this one? <laughs> I'm not hundred percent sure. Okay. So this was, this Did was. Did you like it, James? He's I mean, not maybe. Sure. I need a clarification <laughs> first, I think. <laughs> Yes. Here's here's my thing, um, and this is the one thing that when I was reading the book, um, keep in mind when I was reading the book the first time, um, I'm I'm reading it from a very um, from a very rigid, from a very honorific uh, background. Um, most of my books, most of my heroes, most of the characters that I that I uh, that I ascribe to to emulating um, are bound by a very rigid system of honor. And we get to the end okay. when, uh, when Paul instructs, uh, when, he, when he's talking to Gurney Halleck and he's talking to, to Stilgar and he's talking to the Padishah Emperor and he's, he's Paul Muad'Dib, but he's also uh, the Duke, the Duke of Paul Earth. Atreides. He's also uh, a member of the Houses of Chom. He's, and, and he uses these, he almost... He almost puts them on as as pieces of clothing and then takes them off again when it suits him. The part that the part that for me was the most um, striking was when uh, when they enter the when they enter the palace at Arakeen and uh, and they, he starts going through and he says, "I see several Harkonnens in your party," and the emperor says, "I was my party was promised safe passage." Uh, and he says, Duke, uh, Duke Paul Atreides promised you not Paul Muad'Dib of the Fremen. Um, and we have a greater claim on the Harkonnens at this point than, than, uh, than your, your, uh, your, uh, politics will allow. 
um, this idea that all of a sudden he can shift that however he chooses just by deciding who it is that he wants to speak as. That okay. part for me was the most difficult piece to deal with as a as a late teenager reading through this and looking at it. Coming at it a second time, I read it and I say to myself, yeah. <laughs> and the reason that I do is because this is the universe that Frank Herbert built. It's a universe of expectations and titles and of politics. And throughout the entire book, and, and I wish I'd seen it better when I was a kid, but throughout the entire book, the, the conversations are all about power. Mm -hmm. They're all about getting, using, maintaining, keeping, and pushing people away from power. And in that case, as I read it, I'm very impressed with the way that it was written. I'm very impressed with the way that the character handled the situation because he understood the environment in which he fought, both as a Fremen fighting against Harkonnens in the desert and as a politician in the midst of all of the intrigue that would be surrounding the galactic, the galaxy spanning polit political court that he would have to get into. I loved it. So he is now showing that he is ready to move on from this planet and he take is, the next step. He is no longer a child. He does not have to be handled as a child and he is ready to take over as an emperor and do what emperors need to do. James, okay. did you get that did you get that same sense when you were reading it through this time? Uh not quite to that extent, but I did uh kind of appreciate just the way he just maneuvered everybody in that room exactly where he needed them to get exactly up, what he wanted. Up to and including Fade Routha declaring Canley and, oh, yeah. and no, shouting knew. out and and asking for Canley because up to that point in time, that was a ploy. It was a feint. Um, that's a phrase that that Herbert uses over and over again, and he's going to use it all through the entire series. A feint within a feint within a feint. Plans within plans. Mm. Um, very obviously, set in, set, things set in motion to goad other people to taking action that he wanted them to take, whether it's because it's prescience or just because it's really good politics. I'm not sure, but I liked them both. <laughs> okay. Um, do we have time for a little bit of level one, level two, level three? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We don't, we won't, uh, we won't, I won't belabor this one too much because, uh, we're going to be able to talk about level two, about some of these, some of these level two and level three things as we move through. Um, uh, I talked a little bit about the level two, three, uh, the, uh, the level two or the level three idea about identity, um, and, and honor and what that means. And, and I, I, while I, while I, from a, from a stand of appreciating literature and appreciating the way that Frank Herbert wrote it, I have to admit, I look at it and I say to myself, do I want to be that kind of person? Do I want to be the kind of person that promises one I... thing because of my, because of this role yeah. and then says, but now you're talking to somebody else. And so this role doesn't allows me to break my promises. That was a really interesting kind of a level three conversation. Um, and, and really it's dealt with in a couple of times, uh, he deals with it when he's dealing, when he talks about the difference between how he's going to handle Stilgar and, uh, whether or not he's the Duke of, whether he's the Duke of Arrakis or if he is the leader of the Fremen, um, that kind of a conversation does, does that impact your identity and does that change the rules of honor that you live with fun kind of a deal? 
But level two is probably the one that I wanted to talk about the most. Uh, and I wanted to ask the question. Um, and James, maybe this is something that you've heard a little bit more of. Would you be surprised at the number of times that people have talked about spice as a metaphor for oil? Oh, no, no, not, not at all. In fact, there were, there were a lot of things uh, in this book that were very um, Islamic world, uh, I guess they referenced the Islamic world quite a bit. I mean, obviously the, the, the jihad and Kwisatch uh, Haderach is based off of an Islamic term. And uh, there were a lot of, a lot of similarities to, to the oil or, or to the spice driving commerce and driving the world or driving the galaxy and, and very similar to the way that oil pre- predominantly from the Middle East drives the uh, different, oh, sorry. drives the economy of, of the world. So yeah, it's yeah. The difference being that spice is a renewable resource. It is something that is continually the makers continue to make it. So it's not something that's I mean, it's very precious. It's only made on one planet, but oil is a lot less available. James, how about you? And it's not only made in well, one spot. Uh, right. Just the uh, the fact that the spice is renewable, it might be, but it's also possible to completely remove it from the board. Right. And that's where the power comes from, right? Uh, those who have the ability to destroy it, control it. I think yeah. that's pretty applicable. He says... Good point. He, he says that a couple of times. Yeah. He becomes his own cartel. Does that mean that, and, and from a level two perspective, remember level two is where we talk about so, some of the social implications and whether or not this, whether or not the book that we're reading helps inform us about some of the social issues of our day. Um, the way that, the way that oil is used, the way that, the way that we use um, fuel to drive society and to protect society also makes it dependent upon society. So does that does that inform that conversation? Do you feel like Frank Herbert is making a convers is is trying to drive a conversation about uh, being aware of our natural resources, being aware of the way that we use our fuels and the the impacts that it can have, or is that something that we are laying over the top of his writing because it just seems to fit so well? What do you think? I, or have you thought about those? Kinds I, of I things? think it. I think it fits well. I don't know if it was necessarily um, deliberate. It, it could have been. I think that there were several things that that Frank Herbert has said that that shows that he is is conscious to preserving uh, our natural resources, preserving your natural environment, that sort of thing. And several uh, Reddit or several redditors uh, commented on that same thing about how forward thinking it was to to be environment or how forward thinking he was to to be environmentally conscious mm-hmm. in especially in terms of preserving your resource or or being aware of how how precious it is and not squandering it that sort of thing absolutely well and you come he comes at it from two points of view where he has the freeman who kind of they live alongside the makers and they really understand how it works and then you have the um the baron and the duke and the guild who really try to like manufacture is such a terrible like it's such an obvious word right now but they um they're using technology and they're using all this like the shields the fact that the shields attract the worms Mm -hmm. um and they can lose all of this equipment and they can lose the people like they're really not trying to um 
live in harmony with the planet. They're just trying to get what they want so they can get it and get out as soon as possible. Right. That's one of the quotes that I wrote down that was like, really, they just wanted to get in, get as much as possible and get out. James, how about you? So what's that? How about you on the, uh, from the, from the environmental impact? On the environmental I mean, side. Yeah. Uh, no, definitely. I think he was very forward thinking that I, one of my favorite scenes from part two is uh Kynes' final scene. You know, his oh, whole yeah. like, oh, yeah. here's how we save the planet. I definitely think that was very much something Herbert thought about a lot while he was working on this book is, you know, ecological, ecological issues. I think so. Well, and I, I think um, speaking of that, he he does a lot of um, with, with the atomics in this in this book, the way he the way he mentions and uses the atomics as a as a scare device or as as a well, I'm like an atomic missile would be or an atomic bomb would be a very destructive force. It, he's emphatic about the destructive power and the destructive nature of atomic weaponry which again back in the 60s was a very real concern yeah because i mean they they were still fresh off of of seeing how an atomic bomb could destroy you know a, a city or two and so even in this when when paul uses them not against people but against the shield they still freak out and say you can't use those against people and he he does his talking out of this, both sides of his mouth thing again and says oh, i didn't use them against people i used them against the shield and yeah you know, and, and gets away with it. By, by the way, all the double talking is going to get, that's another one of those is things. Is that one that, of your predictions? Yeah, that's another thing that's going to get him in trouble. So okay. anyway. It's going to keep it a mystery to me though because I don't, like, I don't always read between the lines in those things. I'm like, what? Uh, okay, you you do you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't either. I'm I mean, just reading. I'm the I'm the level one guy, remember? So. Yeah. Do we have any, uh, let, let's, let's see if we've got one or maybe two more Reddit questions. I want to, I want to talk about, uh, before we go, I want to talk about the, uh, the movie and about the upcoming movie. Okay. Uh, if we want to talk about those, let's go back to Abe Lincoln Froman, <laughs> the best Abe Lincoln Froman asked, uh, not with, these are the two questions, uh, notwithstanding the recent cast announcements, what would your dream casting be for the new Dune and why in the name of Shai Hulud do people hate Lynch's movie so much? <laughs> James, what 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 don't uh, why don't you take a stab at some of this first? I'll, right, so I'll follow you up for the new movie. I'm totally okay with it because Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho makes right? me so happy. Ooh, um, I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. As the Lynch movie goes, all I remember is just like with the book, that final fight scene between Paul and Faye is really boring. The rest of the movie I <laughs> I really liked, but that final scene always kind of just leaves me feeling a little wanting. Yeah, there's a lot of build up for that, but there's there's not enough a lot of payoff. And again, I think it's um, just a product of its time, you know. Yeah. Um as as far as as far as casting, I have avoided uh all discussion about the new movie. Um and the except to know that it's coming out. Um and part of the reason that I've done that, that's that's kind of my modus operandi. Uh, more than anything, I try to I try to avoid a lot of the a lot of the pre production hype, largely because and and the one time that I didn't um, shows me oh shutting down, your camera's shutting oh, down. Key. I can still hear you. Can oh, you okay. still hear us? Okay, I hope so. Oh, We're losing your video though. Um,
Okay, now we're back. Um, <laughs> we were talking about uh, faith. Hope, hope we'll see how that comes out in post. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> we were we were talking about uh, about getting stung by the pre-hype uh, stuff. I I just uh, recently have become very disappointed that the Kelvin universe for Star Trek Ugh. is killed because of all of the conversations between Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth, who've decided that they are now worth so much more money even though they had agreed and signed contracts and blah, blah, blah. So that's why I avoid... What? Oh, sorry. Yeah, haven't We're, you heard about that? You're going to have to explain that to me later. I'll talk to you about it later. That's why I avoid the pre-hype. Uh, um, until they are releasing trailers, I I just blow things off. I, I say, yeah, whatever. Um, and so I haven't been paying any attention to the new... to the new... Uh, to, the, to the new Dune film, the new proposed Dune film. Okay. However, <laughs> um, if I were if I were casting... That new Dune film, um, and I'm trying to remember, and you're catching me off guard, so I haven't had the chance to look this up, but the the actress who plays Donna on Suits, I would totally cast her as the Lady Jessica. Somebody out there is going to know that. Um, I, Sorry, I, I, can't, I, I can't open my iPad to look for that or I'm going to lose my notes. Um, yeah, I don't know. That is. But uh, she, would, she would absolutely be, be my choice uh, for, going for going for the Lady Jessica. Um, Sarah Rafferty. There you go. Oh, I see it. Yeah, she would be she would be ideal, I think, as the Lady Jessica. Um, as far as, um, as far as Paul, hmm, uh, not Adam Driver. Um, no, Adam Driver's way too old. He's, yeah, he's, he's way too old to be. I, um, that's the problem. Is he I could don't be. Know. He could be a good um, Raban though. Raban. Or Bond, maybe, maybe. Um, you know, if if we're t if we're talking about Paul and he's supposed to be a fifteen year old kid, yeah. Let's let's throw Tom Holland into the mix. Um, yeah. You know, he's playing Spider Man so well right now. I'd prefer an unknown. <laughs> I, I would get someone too. we don't know. And and yeah, that way I don't have to say I think it should be this person because I don't know who it should be. I don't know. Makes sense to me. Mm. But, but as far as why the David Lynch film is hated so much. Um, I think there's, there's a couple of really interesting things about that. The first one is that there are some things that they inserted into that film that never showed up in the book. And I always get irritated with that. One of them was the weirding modules. James, do you mm. remember the weirding modules? Not is that those, head, those no. gun things? So those are the gun things, and they they attached them to their vocal cords. Right, and used sound as and a weapon. You, yeah, you say something, and, and they said... And they had that big training thing. We will teach you to use your, we, you know, we will teach you to use sound as a weapon. Certain words are killing words, you know. And they and um. they were in there, and the and the guy says, "More deep, you know." My, my name is a killing word, you know. I mean, th that that piece was so unnecessary, so not inclusive, <laughs> and they and they could very easily have just talked about. The prana bindu training, the 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 weirding way of yes, you become very aware of all of your muscles and everything that's going on, and that's what you do. That's the weirding way, um, and that would have been fine. But but they chose to throw that in as some new battle weapon because I guess they figured out that ad audiences wouldn't understand. I think the other thing that they that they did um, that they threw in and again, but I have to. I, I and James, you made mention of this last time, and that was and my favorite my favorite scene is not even in the book it's the scene where paul takes the spice 
uh, and he references, you know, his, his father at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of the film says, there is a sleeper in all of us. The sleeper must awaken. Um, and he gets to that moment where he takes the spice, where, or where he takes the, the water of life and he stands up and he says, father, the sleeper has awakened. And that's when he starts the jihad and all that kind of stuff. You remember that? Okay. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, that, I gotta be honest, that was my that was one of my favorite parts of the whole thing <laughs> because I found myself, I, that resonated with me. The idea that, that most people go through their lives asleep. They go through their lives just doing little things. They never, they never really wake up to their greater purpose. There are That's moments of that that are alluded to it in the book. You know, the, the Reverend mother says you are, you are destined for a terrible purpose and he's trying to figure out what his terrible purpose is. Um, and he alludes to that, but in the movie, it was a very dramatic kind of a thing. And again, it doesn't exist. Having book. having just finally caught up on the movie within the last 24, 36 hours, I, I can tell you it's understandable that people did not gravitate to the movie because it is built so weirdly. And it, it's so weird that they even, the studio even had to produce a glossary to go with the movie. See, and I think that was classic. It, it's clever. I liked it. But if you have to do that, then people are not going to understand your movie. And even worse, critics are not going to understand your movie. And critics didn't. And so it was killed and it failed at the box office. And that and that's why. Because the common common uh, moviegoer did not understand it. But if you get the four-hour director cut... This is what I hear. Yes. It yeah. really makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There, there's one thing to that, by the way, I miss intermissions in movies. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you get movies like Infinity War, and I'll bet you Avengers Endgame is going to be even longer, where they're like two and a half, almost three hours long. Give us an intermission. Give yeah. us a potty break. You my, know, my bladder can only... Yeah, I had to pee right there. Yeah, the yeah. my bladder too. can only stand so much. They, and they I'm sorry, really, it's just, that's wrong. I, I'm not opposed to longer movies, but yeah, I, I think the intermission is a thing that should make a comeback with those longer movies. Now, the contrast with that is that sci-fi did a did a release in the early 2000s. It was like 2002? It was like 2000. Yeah. The yeah, miniseries? Yeah. Uh, that, that was my first introduction okay, to Dune. Okay, okay. So that one, and, yeah. and that one was much more authentic to the book. It was much more, uh, much more true to the books. Mm. Um, but uh, it, again, it had some, it had some issues. Um, the casting was better, uh, or the casting was good. I think the casting was good in the, in the, in the David Lynch one. Um, I, I, think I the, certainly like Kyle McLaughlin. I think the music in the, in that one was just awesome. Having yeah. Toto do the soundtrack was just really, really cool. Um, but we, we also have a, you know, we also have in sci-fi, um, they do, they, they, they do some really cool stuff in some of the scenes uh, but others are the scenes where there's supposed to be thousands of people and there's like 30. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's the, diff and, and you've got the ability to computer generate as many people as you want. So why didn't you No, we just had 30 people cause that's all we could afford on set. <laughs> no computers cost money and sci-fi played a very, very yeah. well back budget. in the day. And that's part of the reason that sci-fi is kind of now the, for the, the channel that it is for good or bad. And I know there's lots of ways we could talk about that, but yeah, there's, there's some stuff going on with that 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 uh, probably are. It, it it's hated, it's maligned. I enjoyed it. Uh, there were there were things about it. I I will say this: watch the four hour version, and you'll kind of go, oh, well, if they'd have showed us that one, that would have made sense. <laughs> 
Um, I, I will say it's not as bad as it gets it gets uh, flack for. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, the still suits made puffy jackets almost popular again. So <laughs> from that one, that, it took a little while. Oh, I thought to catch that was on. Back to the Future. Yeah, no, no, that was life jackets. That was life jackets. Boy, the and the Baron Harkonnen was just every bit as disgusting in in the movie as he was in the book. In both of the, you know, and there were some other things that they threw in there to make the uh, unnecessary, but, um, you know, there, it, it is, it is what it is. Um, Hollywood does what it does. Yeah. So do we have any, do we have any things, any predictions that we think we're going to see in Dune Messiah? You guys, you guys that are new to the series, what are you, uh, what are you, what are you thinking you're going to hear about? What are you looking forward to? Well, we're going out into space. I don't know if there's going to be a wedding, but he's going to go somehow get embroiled in the royal court and all of the goings on there um, and have to learn how to navigate that. I'm really hoping that the princess can be some kind of ally for him. How? Uh, if not, she's going to be working pretty hard against him. I, I don't want to, don't answer this if, if uh, I'll close if, my eyes. If it's germane to the story, but how far into the future are we looking here? I mean, because if it's like recent, then I don't think Let's I don't just, think it's going to be as big a deal that he's taken this this um, bride in name only. But if it's five years, you know, if it's if it's got some time to marinate and she's got times to be frustrated of uh, being cast aside as this princess who has now basically been pushed to the side and not been allowed to, you know, administer and lead and, and do all of the the princess, the queen stuff she's going to be a problem and she's okay. going to be a problem quick. Okay. I also think the Bene Gesserit is going to be a problem. They're not going to really too. enjoy Paul going rogue. And I wonder if they're going to use Aaliyah somehow. Well, and, and or the, if Aaliyah is going to become the villain. Yeah. And the same Bene Gesserit reverend mother that uh, yeah. predicted his death is, is a bad guy who saw that coming. But so I, oh. I imagine she makes in another appearance, but okay. And apparently we get to see the this the trade guild or whatever they're called. I have documented your your predictions and the things that you're looking forward to. I didn't really make my and James is laughing at me. My predictions really aren't that bold, I guess. But I'm looking forward to space like being it. cold. Now that we've gone into how hot it is on I don't know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're gonna find that uh there's 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 lots still to discover. Um and 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 we still um we, we still don't know everything we need to know about how the spice is made and the connection between the spice and the worms. Mm -hmm. We know that they are connected yeah. somehow. And why do they, why are they attracted to technology? Why are they attracted to the technology? That's something still to be discovered. All right. So we got a lot of things. Last thoughts before we close it out, James, why don't, why don't we, uh, why don't we turn over to you? Last thoughts on Dune. What, what's, uh, what's on your mind? What, what would you say to somebody that was, that you were going to be talking to and say, you know, here's why, here's why I think Dune is worth the read or why it's not. Um, so I definitely think it's worth reading. Uh, in this last read through, especially in part three, there was one little theme that really stuck out to me. And we talked about it earlier, but Paul's prescience. Um, he talks about the, uh, the eye that looks ahead to the safe course is closed forever. That one really stuck with me this time, and it's kind of like, yeah, maybe taking a risk is the better way to live life, you know? Okay. So that's that's that was my little takeaway from book three that 
it's just kind of been going around in my head for the past week or so since I finished the okay. book again. Um, but yeah, it's it's one I would recommend to anyone who says they're a fan of genre fiction should at least give it a try. Might not like it, but it's worth giving okay. it a try. Megan. Oh, I didn't know you were going to throw it to me. I was going to throw it to you. Megan. Oh. Uh, let's cut this out in post. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what happening. we do. That's what we do. Ken, why don't you go? I, I wanted to toss this out. It was a question that was posted a couple of times that uh, we didn't really touch on, but uh, they asked about this being science fiction versus science fantasy or being versus fantasy. And, and uh, I think... Really, with with rare exceptions, science fiction and, and fantasy are, are kind of just two sides of the same coin. They they basically run the same course. They just the 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 scenery as you do it is a little bit different. And uh, so so yeah, I would call this science fiction mainly because there are things that are are driven in science, like the still suits, like the uh, the genetic breeding, like uh, the interstellar uh, commerce and, and, and the way those things work, but, and you're not cooking every meal over a fire and you're not cooking every meal over a fire, but there are a lot of things that are fantastical in nature, like, like the world that they are on. They're in this desolate world, like the, the natives that they have to, um, become involved with and, and become part of their tribe and, and everything is fantasy and science fiction really are. I mean, they're, they're two names for basically the same thing with, with different, set dressing so so yeah if you want to call this fantasy in space that's fine i i don't have a problem with that okay megan did you do you have something now that you want to say um no i don't i'm i'm enjoying this read i'm excited to see what happens next okay and and for me i would just say you know if if you like james said if you're a fan of of the genre if you say that you're a science fiction fan and you have not read dune um, you you probably are you probably are doing a disservice to yourself. Mm. Um, it is a it is a hallmark of the of the of the genre, and it is a as a pillar uh, of modern science fiction. And it's worth the time to read. Yeah. And there is lots to enjoy in the book that is not just the science fiction. That it it really is an informed storytelling process on lots of levels. Um, James, uh, I haven't pre- I haven't we didn't prepare you for this, but just real quick before we close out. Do you have an elevator pitch that you would give us for for the books that you're writing that maybe you could give the listeners uh, as as part of your because this is the last time that we're scheduled to have you with us. Uh, do you want to give us a quick elevator pitch on what your books are? Uh, yeah, if I actually have a specific one, I'd like to pitch Heck if that's yeah. okay. It's not necessarily one I wrote, but my little uh, personal imprint uh, is releasing an anthology collection at the end of February, and it's a charity anthology going to benefit uh, suicide awareness and prevention. And the book's called Where There Are Dragons. Wow. Uh, it's a mixed genre, meaning we got everything from literary fiction, uh, science fiction, poetry. We've got some bizarro in there. So there's at least one story that every kind of reader might enjoy, as well as one of my own. Um, but yeah, I think uh, if I could, that's the one I'd like to pitch, uh, Where There and Are Dragons. And that can be found on Amazon? Amazon uh, pre-orders for the ebook are available now at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Apple. Very cool. Wherever you can find books, you All can right. find it. Go check it out. Well, James, thanks very much for joining us on this. You've been a delightful guest. Um, we've enjoyed your insights, and Thank you. uh, and as Ken has indicated, we're a couple of us are reading for you right now, and uh, maybe we'll set something up with that uh, somewhere down the road a little bit. 
Yeah, hopefully uh, you'll, you'll like People go get goes. Jack's Blood Fist. In the meantime, uh, make sure you keep your Christ knives sharp or may your blade chip and shatter, whatever it is that you want to say as you're walking away from things. We'll see you next time on The Legendarium. <laughs>